Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The word mindfulness has become associated with a trend in self-help practices, but it's much more than that, and it's no passing fat. Mindfulness is a scientifically proven, cost-free way for us to center ourselves, calm down, and focus on the present moment. Dr. Cameron Gordon, an associate professor of psychology, has been teaching a class on mindfulness and meditation locally and is with us on the program to discuss how it works and why it works. We'll put our minds to it after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Insurance Group of America has given a significant boost to MTSU's new professional sales program with a $100,000 scholarship that funds a new office to increase student outreach and internship opportunities. The IGA Office of Professional Sales within the Jennings A. Jones College of Business will benefit from a yearly $20,000 commitment for the next five years from Jamie No, founder and owner of Nashville-based IGA, who says he hopes the office's enhanced student outreach efforts attracts top scholars and builds the sales concentration, quote, into a nationally recognized program, end quote. And a national organization for educators specializing in kinesiology has bestowed its highest award on an MTSU professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance. The National Association for Kinesiology in Higher Education presented Dr. Stephen Estes, who also serves as director of the College of Behavioral and Health Sciences Leisure and Sport Management Graduate Program with its President's Award January 10th at the group's annual convention in Savannah, Georgia. Estes's interest in the field of kinesiology, which is the study of body mechanics, began when he was a college athlete. He rode at San Diego State University, where he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in 1982 and 85, respectively, and trained and competed for U.S. national rowing teams during his time there. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Cameron, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How do you define mindfulness? Um, it sort of depends on, on what concept I'm trying to emphasize. It's a diverse practice, but in a nutshell, it's a, uh, a matter of focusing your awareness with intention on something that's happening in the present moment and with uh, what I refer to as curiosity. Some people call it non-judgment or non-attachment or openness, um, but it's an intentional awareness of the present moment that's curious. How did we get away from being mindful in society? Is it the pace that requires us to multitask all the time, personally and professionally, or were there other contributing factors? There are a lot of, of contributing factors, and it's, a, it's certainly society is a part of it, and, and the multitasking, and the we're in a very fast-paced world right now with the transmission of information just flying at us constantly, and and uh, the things that, that we kind of have embraced as a culture that keep us on the, on the treadmill, so to speak. Um, but we're also dealing with a, a brain that likes to move very fast and likes to be um, very, very efficient in processing massive amounts of data very quickly. Your brain would rather be fast than accurate. And so when you say, um, how have we gotten away from it, uh, I, I think we are maybe in in some ways moving away from it but we probably have 
have always had some challenges as a species in overcoming a natural tendency toward processing things quickly and jumping to the next thing. Your brain would also rather be stimulated than unstimulated. Most of us hate to be bored, right? <laughs> That's true. A lot of people really have a disdain for, for boredom, yeah. What does the scientific research say about mindfulness? Well, there's a ton of, of data now. Um, there's been kind of an explosion of interest in the scientific community in this over the last really 20 plus years, but it's it, I've seen in the last 10 even just a, a massive increase in the data that is coming out um, about this. So it's being applied to all kinds of different things now. Um, some of the findings that I usually emphasize most when I'm introducing it to people are that it has a very significant impact on our physical and mental health. In our physical health, it's been applied successfully to assisting with treatments for everything from heart disease and epilepsy to cancer and diabetes. In our mental health, it's been applied to emotional kind of uh, difficulties managing your emotions when, when your moods really swing up and down, as well as substance use, um, depression, you know, all sorts of things there, and, and also trying to maximize uh, health and well-being in our families. Now, when it comes to physical health, I do want to emphasize that when I say it's been, it's been used effectively to help treat cancer and things like that, it, it won't literally shrink a cancerous tumor. That's not what the, the claims are. We don't want to be trying to sell snake oil or anything right. like that. This is um, not a cure for anything. <laughs> right. It's Well, it's not a cure for the, the physical disease states, but, the, but it does have a substantial impact on your ability to cope with stress. And if you're suffering with a cancer diagnosis and undergoing an extremely stressful treatment for an extremely stressful condition, then your ability to manage that stress more effectively and get better sleep and engage more productively in your treatment regimen that your doctors are prescribing and things can have a very real, very physical impact on your outcome. And so um, when we talk about mindfulness having this impact in both physical and mental ways, uh, it may be a more direct impact on on mental um, kind of processes, but the physical processes are very real too. But we usually look at the ways that stress impacts and, and deteriorates our functioning. Is most of the research quantitative or qualitative? Most of it's quantitative at this point. I mean, there are certainly uh, numerous qualitative descriptions and, and suggestions and things like that, that that people can find out in the world these days. Some of them, of course, are higher quality than others, but uh, the things that I'm referring to are quantitative. We'll take a break right here. We will be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the Record. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference at MTSU for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For more information, visit mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about mindfulness and meditation with Dr. Cameron Gordon, an associate professor of psychology 
does mindfulness require moments of meditation or not necessarily? Well, I sort of describe uh, mindfulness and, and mindfulness meditation as um, two things that can go together, but they, they, we can think about them separately, too. Mindfulness, um, for me, in the way that I describe it and teach it, refers to a collection of, of cognitive and behavioral skills that we teach people um, in terms of how to focus your intention, your attention with intention, um, with purpose, on the present moment and with curiosity. And, and so that's mindfulness in and of itself. The way to strengthen those skills is through a mindfulness meditation practice. And um, so I think of meditation as sort of the training ground for the skills that, that certainly people tend to get more benefit from when they bring off the meditation map so that you can be more present and curious in your interactions with loved ones, for example, or when you're stuck in a traffic jam and feeling frustrated and that sort of thing. That's where the rubber really meets the road. But to get there, you have to usually spend some time on the the meditation cushion training in those skills. So it could be yoga, for example, but not necessarily yoga. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap with yoga and a lot of people who really um, come to love mindfulness and mindfulness meditation find sort of a home for it in yoga and vice versa. There are a variety of forms of meditation, of course, but mindfulness meditation specifically can uh, sort of overlap very nicely with certain forms of yoga. Of course, there are a variety of forms of yoga too, but depending on how you do it, yoga can be a moving meditation. Is it important to make mindfulness a habit? In other words, to practice it so much to the point where it will become second nature to you in stressful situations like that traffic jam, to just immediately go there rather than having to use it consciously to deal with your road rage? Certainly, the more you practice, the more accessible the skills will be, you know. And and so um, if you're kind of caught in a situation where it'll be really helpful, but you haven't practiced it much, then you might find that that challenge is overwhelming to your skill level. But if you've been practicing it a lot and your skills are are really have been developed well and, and are very accessible to you as a result of that practice, then you'll be able to meet more and more challenges. I kind of talk about it sort of like skills like doing math or playing basketball. It's not really a matter of can you do math, yes or no. It's a matter of how much math can you do and, and can the math that you're capable of doing rise to the challenge of, of meeting whatever obstacles are presented to you mathematically. And so, you know, when you're first starting out and learning two plus two, then there's a whole lot of problems out there you can't solve with your math. But as you get more and more versed in mathematics, there are fewer and fewer problems that become uh, overwhelming. And the same is true with your mindfulness meditation. It's not, can I do it? Yes or no. It's what am I capable of doing with my mindfulness skills now? And can I practice and hone and develop them to the point where they become easier to access and more available in really difficult moments. With basketball, for example, which you mentioned, uh, it's also a matter of muscle memory so that you can perform certain tasks in actual game playing or scrimmaging Mm -hmm. without actually stopping to think, okay, now is where I have a set shot. Now is where Mm -hmm. I do a layup. Now is where I shoot the three-pointer. And it becomes a second nature to you, right? Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for that in in a mindfulness practice. Um, The reason I'm not fully embracing that description is because the the practice is about intention. It's about purposefully um, bringing your attention to uh, the present moment with openness and curiosity. 
curiosity. So it does get easier and easier to access. It does become more accessible. It becomes less of a, a process of, okay, I'm really upset. What should I do to cope with this? And, and becomes kind of right there at, at hand when you need it. So it does become more automated in that way. But there's a certain diminishing return if it becomes too automated because mm-hmm. then it, it detracts from its, its um, you know, utility and maybe even its own its own identity as mindfulness. It's Um, purpose-driven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's always Mm purpose-driven. Is there any wrong way, quote-unquote, to do mindfulness? Now, we know there are wrong ways to do physical exercises, Mm -hmm. uh, and you could end up injured as a result. Many people who sort of teach mindfulness will argue that, especially in the early stages of your training, you need to cultivate a self-discipline and really kind of cultivate a humility by following particular instructions and doing it a certain way and using a certain posture in your sitting and things like that. But as you advance in the practice and kind of bring your skills up to a certain level, then then you really need to kind of switch focus often and, and emphasize the playfulness and the flexibility of it. And don't take this too seriously. And so there's kind of a, a dance that you do in your practice between those two extremes. We're trying to find a balance between those. So I would hesitate to say that there's a wrong way or at least a, a harmful way, but certainly we could think we're practicing something that can lead to a lot of self-indulgence and a lot of maybe too much acceptance of things that we shouldn't accept, things that we should be motivated to change, for example. So So those would be some of the potential risks if you kind of develop a practice that has no boundaries and no goals or regulations to it. But of course, there's a risk in in saying that, you know, I must feel relaxed at the end of this. I must sit for a certain amount of time. I must sit with my back straight or I must sit at all, you know, and and you can certainly meditate while you're walking. You can certainly meditate while you're laying down. And as soon as you create too rigid of a, a rule system, then you're not really practicing the curiosity that is so core to the practice. So going to get disappointed in yourself and maybe even depressed and shy away from it all if you think that you're doing it incorrectly when in fact the rules aren't that rigid. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of, when I'm first introducing it to people, I say, you know, there there are some rules. We want to try to be present with what we're doing, you know. So I'm a clinical psychologist and people will practice guided imagery as a relaxation technique of close your eyes and imagine your happy place, so to speak. You're on a, a nice beach or a mountaintop or something like that. That. And those can be beautiful ways to relax. And I really encourage people to do that. I personally don't call that mindfulness meditation because I would say, well, we're trying to be present. You know, we're trying to build a relationship really with what is happening right now that feels somewhat open and and al- allowed to create enough space with our present moment experience that it takes any kind of sting out of it. You know, if we're imagining being on a beach or a mountaintop or something, then we're not present unless, of course, we're actually at the beach. Then, then those are fun meditations to do. What is the reaction? of students when you talk to them about mindfulness? What sort of feedback have you received? Um, Initially, I get all kinds of reactions, and I've taught this to people of all ages. I have a therapy practice where I coach people individually on this at Southeast Psych in Brentwood. I'm teaching this to uh, senior citizens through their Osher Lifelong Learning Institute right now at Vanderbilt, and I'm teaching it here at MTSU to our undergraduates and graduate students. Across the the lifespan, I get all kinds of reactions um, initially. Some people really have a lot of preconceptions notions about what it is and and those preconceived notions drive them to really love it or really hate it right out of the gate and uh, and I really try to help people pull back from their preconceived notions I don't want too strong of a relationship with it before we start in either direction so some people are very excited and very passionate and and think that this is going to solve everything and uh, other people are very resistant to it and say this is a bunch of hippy dippy stuff and I don't want to do it 
And so I really try to try to say, well, you know, part of the practice is to remain curious, which means that we have to notice our preconceived notions and kind of put a pause on them and, and say, I wonder what it would be like if I were regarding this for the first time and didn't know anything about it. And can we bring that sort of openness to the practice? And so if I can help people to create that sort of process, then maybe people are just being friendly or something. But by, by the time that uh, I'm done working with them and helping them develop their practice, I haven't really gotten any negative feedback about the practice itself. Maybe I've had a, a couple of students who have said, you know, this has been really interesting, but I don't plan to continue the practice. But the vast majority of students and therapy clients will say, gosh, this has been a really informative and valuable thing. And I'm glad that I've been introduced to it. And I intend to continue it one way or another. Can you see it being of particular benefit to college students, especially freshmen who are like fish out of water in this brand new environment and have to get used to a whole new system of time management, deal with the university bureaucracy, all kinds of things like that. Lots of no stressors. Question. Absolutely. There are specific applications for students that can be very helpful in kind of creating enough sort of space with your experience to maybe center yourself and focus better during an exam, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about focusing your awareness. So if you can bring your full attention to the exam, especially if your heart's pounding because you're nervous, mm -hmm. um, that can really improve your exam scores, for example, you know, um, just like it can diminish your road rage on the way to campus when you're trying to get to the exam and you're running late. One of the things that I love about this practice is it's very broadly applicable mm -hmm. across the life stages and in many, many different situations. So there are certainly individual applications for students, just as there are individual applications for the elderly, for example, or for athletes, you know. And so these things can be honed to fit a variety of challenges that people have. Like I said, I've taught this to senior citizens. I've taught it to undergraduates and everything in, in between those ages. And when I'm teaching it to senior citizens, they'll often remark, gosh, I wish I had learned about this earlier. And I always kind of smile when I hear that because I hear that often. And I, and I share with them that, you know, when I teach this to my 19 and 20 year old college students, they often say, gosh, I wish I had learned this earlier. And so when you really get a chance to sit down with people learning this, you see that their reactions, uh, regardless of where they are in life and what they're doing, are, are often very similar. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge, offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction Era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Cameron Gordon is our guest. He's an associate professor of psychology, and he's been teaching a class on mindfulness and meditation uh, at one of the local churches here. Can you describe for us some of the mindfulness exercises that one can perform? 
Sure. Um, they can kind of, kind of sound a little silly if you're not at all familiar with the task. I, I like to uh, start off in, like in my therapy practice when I'm doing a one-on-one um, kind of training with somebody and we begin uh, meditating. I'll, I'll teach them a lot about the principles. I'll explain in a lot of detail why present moment awareness and curiosity are so important. Present moment awareness in particular has been shown in the research to be associated with increasing levels of happiness and joy and engagement with life. And curiosity has been and particularly tied to decreasing distress and, and struggle that people have. So it's kind of a one-two punch that's very, very valuable. So I kind of go through and describe all of that and why that is and how it's important to practice. And then when we get down to the practice, I'll often do first a guided, um, meaning it's a, a recording or me talking them through it, a guided raisin eating meditation. And the one that I typically use is 18 minutes long, recorded by John Kabat-Zinn, you know. Mm-hmm. So so we literally spend 18 minutes eating a single raisin. Mm-hmm. And we will, um, we will use all five senses. We'll look at it, we'll touch it, we'll smell it, we'll listen to the raisin. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of notice what's happening in the body as we prepare to put the raisin in our mouth and, and um, the digestion process that begins before you even have food in your mouth, you know. Um, so it's really about bringing all of your attention to what's happening and paying attention to things we don't normally pay attention to. And you start to see that, you know, I may have had hundreds or thousands of raisins before, but when you really stop and kind of attend to the experience with curiosity as if you hadn't ever seen a raisin before, certainly haven't seen the raisin that you're holding in that moment, then you start to notice there's variations in its color and in its uh, there are unique patterns in the wrinkles in it. And there are um, all kinds of things that happen uh, once you put it into your mouth that you don't normally stop to notice. And, and the whole thing just becomes more interesting. I guess I should just say it becomes a richer experience. You know, I'm not trying to necessarily make things better or worse with a mindfulness practice. I'm just trying to bring people into a greater contact with what's happening because when we're on sort of an automated thought process or on autopilot, we don't notice those things. And so, like you said earlier, people don't like to be bored. And I say, yeah, it's it's true. People don't like to be bored. But if you actually eat a raisin mindfully for 18 minutes, it's a pretty fascinating process, which which provides hope that anything can be interesting if eating a raisin can be interesting. Isn't there also one in which the person lies down and begins to think about the relaxation of each part of the body from head to toe Mm -hmm. individually Mm -hmm. and moving from body part to body part? That's often referred to as a body scan meditation. Indeed, you know, you can lie down, you can do a body scan sitting up or or standing, um, but oftentimes people lie down. I usually choose to do it that way. You'll sort of begin with one part of the body, usually at the head or the feet, and kind of progressively work your way through the whole body. And some people certainly will use that as a relaxation exercise. It's very, very common for people to think of mindfulness as a way of relaxing, and it's a more diverse kind of practice than that. So I really try to, to encourage people to think that, you know, relaxation is a side effect of mindfulness often, not always, but often. Mindfulness really is about honing these skills of presence and curiosity. So as you're going through your body, the way that, that you kind of described it is to think about different parts of your body and relax them. And some people will do it that way and have a very pleasant effect. But if we're going to go for a pure curiosity in our practice, then we're not necessarily trying to relax the body. We're just trying to get in rhythm with what your elbow feels like in this moment. Can you notice anything there at all physically? Are there any emotions that come up? If you had, if you had some kind of gruesome elbow injury before, you may find that when your attention comes to your elbow, that, that emotions arise from your elbow, you know, that fear or anger or things like that arise. So we're going to try to really notice what are the physical sensations throughout the body? What are any other things that happen as we're bringing our attention 
attention down to focus on one particular spot before we move on to the next one and and not necessarily trying to shift it just to allow it enough space to be for a moment and regard it and not sort of increase it or decrease it just to kind of notice. Can you do it at the office without looking silly or lying down or taking off your clothes? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you can meditate with your eyes open, your eyes closed. Um, You know, when we talk about uh, informal meditation practices, we're talking about bringing these same skills of present moment awareness and curiosity to our everyday tasks, like typing an email or brushing our teeth or things like that. So one of the most frequent things I hear is that people say, gosh, you know, mindfulness meditation seems promising to me. I'm starting to like it, but I just don't have time to practice it for half an hour a day. I'm a busy person. I've got a job and a family and all these things. And and so I say, well, you know, why don't you focus for a while on your informal meditation practice, meaning you have to brush your teeth anyway. Try brushing them mindfully, you know, see what it really actually feels like, kind of like with that raisin to brush your teeth. And it's sort of an interesting process. This comes back to being playful with the practice. Most of us don't realize how automated our toothbrushing has become. And so I, I often say, you know, if you're having a hard time keeping your mind focused on the present moment of brushing your teeth, if you're normally brush your teeth with your right hand, try brushing it with your left, and you'll very quickly see how unique it feels. I'm trying to steer folks away from unreliable sources of information on the internet, of Mm -hmm. which there are many. What reliable sources of information would you recommend? Things that are associated with um, research that's being done at universities are usually more reliable. Um, You know, my colleagues who study it and I study it certainly are are trying to be very thoughtful about the data behind it and promoting practices that have some evidence behind them. It's kind of a a double-edged sword that mindfulness has become so popular lately because there's a lot more awareness about it, a lot more interest in it and it's a extremely beneficial practice so that's a good productive thing for us all to have more on our radar and yet that also creates a lot of misunderstanding about it and a lot of misinformation about it and things like that and so if you uh, look for one resource that I often guide people toward is at the UCSD UC San Diego um, and if you just google UCSD mindfulness audio that often will bring you to a page that, where there's lots of uh, free guided meditations that are really excellent there are other resources like that you know doing some experimenting and looking around people um, sometimes like having gentle music in the background of a guided meditation. Other people really prefer not to have that. Some people prefer to, to meditate in silence. Um, I like to diversify the practice and do all of the above, you know. But really for me, the kind of go-to standard I have is if people are creating a practice that is focused on those skills of present moment awareness and curiosity, then we're doing mindfulness meditation. And if they are not, then we are probably doing something else. Not that it's harmful or bad to do, I teach a lot of things that that are guided imagery and relaxation and things, but I don't call them mindfulness. So if you really want to practice mindfulness, then look for things that promote non-judgment slash curiosity or non-attachment. Different words get used to describe that and present moment awareness. And if you're developing those two skills, then you're practicing mindfulness. Dr. Cameron Gordon, thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. We'll be right back. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation 
acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There is no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. Science Olympiad, an event full of STEM activities, will be held Saturday, February 23rd across the MTSU campus. 400 middle school and high school students will be participating in teams seeking state Science Olympiad berths. MTSU professor and event director Pat Patterson shares more. It's going to be a very lively, exciting campus with probably over 400, 500 students this year. This is our 24th MTSU Science Olympiad Regional Tournament. We have 14 middle school teams and 18 high school teams. 23 events in each division. And so now we have things like uh, code busters and game on. So we're doing more of the computer kind of thing. In addition to the traditional different disciplines within science. So we have chemistry, physics events, building events. We have geology, astronomy math event, and oh, a lot of, uh, a lot of geology types, biology events. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com, Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.